5,000 years ago, along the western border of South America, a tribe of natives were hunting a herd of alpaca on the mountain slopes. Many were equipped with slings made of braided yarn, and others used bows with arrows, or spears made of obsidian blades. While approaching the alpaca as they grazed on the Andean cliffside, the natives began their attack. But the alpaca are surprisingly agile, and their dense coat makes for a resilient barrier to the crude tools of the natives. They are not easy to kill. During the skirmish, one of the hunters loses his footing on the rocky terrain, and he strikes his head against one of the mountain boulders. He loses consciousness. He's bleeding from his scalp, and several of the other hunters abandon the incursion to come to his aid. One applies pressure to the open wound. It's half a day's hike back to home, and it will take even longer to carry the injured companion. By the time they arrive at camp, the shaman had already been notified of the complication from the hunt, and he was prepared to see the unconscious hunter. Palpating over the depressed skull bone, the shaman finds the expected area of depression. Using a sharpened stone tool known as a tumi, the shaman carves out a small hole, no larger than an arrowhead, adjacent to the area of depression, and he applies local herbs to reduce the bleeding and to protect the open wound. The other hunters watch, but it would be another day or two before their friend regains consciousness, if he even wakes up. While the ancient technique of trepanation may seem crude, based on mankind's historically limited understanding of neurology, health, and not to mention sterile technique, this type of brain surgery happens to be one of the oldest surgical procedures invented by mankind, and it's the oldest neurosurgical procedure. It's thought to even be older than the use of metal instruments, or even the written language itself. And it may surprise you, but events like that in Neolithic South America present-day Peru. They were not entirely unusual, and it would not be crazy for someone like that to have survived after an Incan surgeon would strategically grind a hole in his skull after that significant head injury. I mean, with a significant traumatic head injury and skull fracture, the likely outcome would still be death. But more often than you think, people would have lived after primordial brain surgery. Sometimes they might even recover. In this episode of Brainwaves, we'll shed some light on the history of this ancient technique. And maybe you won't think it was so crazy after all. At the time of its conception, somewhere about 10,000 years ago, in what may be present-day Peru, somebody had a fair idea as to what they were doing. According to neuroanatomist and historian of medicine, Pierre-Paul Broca, To trepan on an apparent fracture at the bottom of a wound is a sufficiently simple conception. But here the trepan was performed on a point where there was no fracture or probably even no wound, so the surgical act was preceded by a diagnosis. We are authorized to conclude that there was in Peru, before the European epoch, an advanced surgery. Now you might be listening to this episode and thinking to yourself, Jim, this is ridiculous. There's no way that humans have been drilling holes into other live humans for thousands of years. You might be thinking that the holes found in skulls of dead people were the result of trauma like a spear or an arrowhead through the skull. Or if they were placed by surgical instrumentation, then they were performed after death. But, as a matter of fact, 
many patients who underwent trepanation had tissue evidence that the skull had begun to heal, indicating that this procedure was done on the living, and that people even survived after the procedure was performed. You might think then that people eventually stopped trying to do it, because it was too painful. It was voodoo, or it inevitably resulted in death. But amazingly enough, that's not the case either. Certainly, many people who underwent trepanation thousands of years ago likely died because of these rudimentary techniques, or because of uncontrolled pain. Yet, an impressive number of people survived. Even 2,000 years ago, at the time of Christ, when trepanation was not an uncommon practice throughout Asia and Europe, more and more people were surviving than in the centuries prior. While the term trepanation has its origins from the Greek word trepanon, for borer or auger, the technique was originally practiced in many Mesolithic era societies, spanning nearly all of the major continents today, Africa, Asia, Europe, South America, and Mesoamerica. And even more interesting was that this procedure was independently discovered by each of these peoples. And like I just mentioned, trepanation was developed before the design of metal tools, so many people were using sharpened stones, or even wood, to bore holes in live human skulls. At the time of its conception, based on our limited ability to know what people were thinking thousands of years ago, trepanation was thought to expel from the mind the evil spirits which were responsible for convulsions, for headaches, and other inexplicable symptoms or behaviors. Basically, disturbances of mentation that were caused by demons and other supernatural elements. At least, that's what Broca gathered from his research on the matter. This opinion was also shared by William Osler, our father of modern medicine, who wrote that trepanation was done for epilepsy, infantile convulsions, headache, and various cerebral diseases believed to be caused by confined demons to whom the whole gave a ready method of escape. Victor Horsley, a contemporary of Broca and someone equally knowledgeable on the subject, objected to these more limited perspectives. He posited that trepanation may have originally been used to treat pain, or epilepsy, in the setting of skull fractures in many South American and Eastern societies. In support of Horsley's claim, many skulls recovered from these ancient burial grounds happened to bear surgically placed holes adjacent to regions of small skull fractures. That being said, each unique culture likely had their own independent rationale for boring holes in the skulls of their friends and families. And we shouldn't generalize one belief to many independent and geographically isolated societies. As far as the rationale of trepanation is considered, the Egyptians ought to be credited with the first and most physiologically accurate understanding of this early surgical procedure. The Edwin Smith Papyrus, Earth's oldest known truly medical document, which dates back to the 17th century before the Common Era, contains some of the earliest descriptions of neuroanatomy. These observations would remain the most accurate anatomical atlases until Andreas Vesalius would publish De Humani Corporis Fabrica, The Structure of the Human Body, in 1543. The Edwin Smith Papyrus described the parts of the skull, the meninges, and identified the cerebrospinal fluid as something unique from other bodily secretions. It strongly disputed other famous texts of about that era, notably the Ebers papyrus, which emphasized more mysticism than medicine. In addition to being a highly accurate anatomical reference, the Smith papyrus also described some of the earliest clinical practices. 
in particular, it offered recommendations for the management of brain and spinal trauma. However, while ancient Egyptian corpses around this time may have been identified as having surgically placed boreholes, the Edwin Smith papyrus made no mention of the use of trepanation. So, Broca may actually have been correct in supposing that trepanation had no truly biologic or physiologic indications, at least among the early Egyptians. Maybe trepanation had less of a scientific basis, and more of a mystical one for these peoples. After the time of the ancient Egyptians, little progress was made in the realm of neurosurgery, at least until the 5th century BCE. Around this time, Hippocrates of Kos, the father of medicine, would publish his famous neurosurgical text, On Injuries of the Head. According to Hippocrates, And if, when an indentation by a weapon takes place in a bone, it be attended with fracture and contusion, and even if contusions alone, without fracture, be combined with the indentation, it requires trepanning. Those bones, which are most pressed and broken, require trepanning the least. This was only one of his many medical texts, which would become the world's foremost resources that transformed medical practice from one of magic and mysticism to one of observation and interpretation. While trepanation had previously been used to treat certain headaches, Hippocrates was one of the first to describe various headache syndromes as pathologic states, which relate to an underlying biologic condition. He dedicated his life to observations of human health, to the characterization of disease, and to the documentation of safe and effective clinical practices. In the treatises I just mentioned, On Injuries of the Head, Hippocrates described various causes and complications of traumatic head injury, of bony contusions and skull fractures, and a variety of surgical interventions for these patients who suffered from diseases affecting the brain. Hippocrates even distinguished what cases were operable and which injuries would inevitably result in death. Head trauma was not a mystery to the Greeks, or to many earlier human societies for that matter. War is far older than any other human hobby, and the dangers of head injury from battle was widely recognized. Superficial skull lacerations were known to bleed more profoundly than other wounds of the body, and head injuries with alterations of consciousness or lethargy were even more concerning among soldiers and civilians alike. Aware of these prior observations, and having made many others of his own, Hippocrates built on prior Celtic medical concepts and alleged that surgical exploration of select skull fractures and even the use of drilling through the skull would permit the surgeon to drain abscesses, elevate depressed skull bones, and remove necrotic tissue. At the time, one wouldn't say that trepanation was a common practice or a standard of care for head injuries, but it certainly was not a technique that Hippocrates had devised himself or improved upon, merely promoted. It goes without saying that the technique of trepanation has evolved over the millennia. In ancient Greece at the time of Hippocrates, there were three major styles. The oldest of the styles, this is going to sound horrible, involved scraping of bone. Often used for necrotic tissue, a semi-sharpened instrument was used on patients to grind down a small region of the skull until the underlying meninges were exposed. A second style, one more modern, involved a serrated trephine that took the form of a ring-like drill attached to the end of a rod. With a serrated ring affixed to the skull, the rod would be rotated, and eventually a ring of bone would be wholly excised. 
Finally, a third approach used what looks like a large, fancy drill bit, called a terebra serrata. This device would grind out a hole in the skull, leaving shards of bone and soft tissue residue around the surgical site. And if you think these sound painful, for an era in human history where opiates were unavailable in Europe and the Americas, imagine that these instruments had to be bathed in cold water at various times throughout the procedure. You see, the friction from grinding against that rigid bone would heat up these tools to the point of burning the soft tissues of the skull and causing even more pain. Besides the incredible pain endured by patients who were conscious during trepanation, Hippocrates also recognized a few other complications of these early attempts at brain surgery. The risk of hemorrhage was immediately apparent, especially if scraping was used against the temples, where, quote, a great vessel lies, as it was described, meaning the superficial temporal artery. In fact, if you looked at many of these ancient skulls that were subject to trepanation, you'll hardly find a skull with any denuded temporal bone. Hippocrates also acknowledged the risk of brain infection in the event that the meninges were penetrated, a complication that was almost universally fatal at the time. And because of their thinner skulls, Hippocrates recommended against trepanation in children. Interestingly, Hippocrates only acknowledged the use of trepanation in head injury, and furthermore, he never clearly documented why trepanation would be of any clinical benefit. Among any of the identified patterns of skull injury, only a depressed skull fracture in ancient Greece may have benefited from trepanation. And yet Hippocrates recognized many other inappropriate indications, which could not have improved with these elementary neurosurgical practices. All the while, intracranial abscesses and hematomas were known causes of neurologic dysfunction, but Hippocrates never admitted that draining of these fluid-filled structures could alleviate symptoms or treat disease. He does acknowledge a benefit of removing some sort of fluid, but whether this fluid was CSF, or blood, or both, remains unclear to present-day historians. Regarding the use of trepanation to relieve intracranial pressure caused by fluid buildup, it would be another 600 years before Galen offered his own theories regarding the physiology of trepanation, and another 2,000 years before the Monroe-Kelly Doctrine was officially described. It may sound like I'm overly critical of Hippocrates for getting a lot of these basic principles wrong, but truth be told, he rationalized many surgical procedures, including trepanation. Through his collected and widely disseminated works, he encouraged physicians of antiquity to practice medicine using their minds rather than their magic. His methods were unprecedented, and they undoubtedly shaped the way care was delivered to many people for the next 1,000 years, until Galen of Pergamon would pick up the reins. Arguably the most dedicated student of Hippocratic teaching, Galen built upon his earlier master's work. He added to the Hippocratic works invaluable neuroanatomic observations, recognizing, for example, the symptoms of hydrocephalus and the role of the ventricular system, the localization of arm or leg weakness to injury of the spinal column, and the functions of certain cranial nerves. He also refined the technique of trepanation himself, in a time where this technique was more widely acceptable than in 5th century BCE Greece at the time of Hippocrates. Among these modifications was the use of certain substances in the post-operative period, things that may have facilitated healing. It's thought that several of these chemical irritants had some antibiotic activity, although obviously Galen could not have known that at the time. 
you might be surprised to know that even before the use of modern-day Western medical practices, like routine antibiotic use and sterile technique, that many patients who underwent trepanation survived for weeks or even longer. As far as the indications for this procedure go, which were vague in the writings of Hippocrates, Galen acknowledged many of those purposes. It was Galen who first documented the role of trepanation in draining, quote, phlegmatous lesions of the head and to relieve pressure caused by intracranial hematomas. The indications for trepanation slowly shifted away from the mysticism of evil spirits and toward the rational practices that would transform into Western medicine. Galen also had better tools than Hippocrates, and he used various types of trepans depending on the indication, some of which were more effective at removing pieces of bone, some that may have been more effective at draining abscesses, and some which included a component to prevent penetration of the dura, and might therefore have resulted in a lower infection rate. Earlier in the episode, I mentioned that human societies, once they had figured out trepanation, they never stopped using it. Well, that's not entirely accurate. In the years following Galen's seminal contributions to medicine and surgery, about the time of the Middle Ages and the early Renaissance, trepanation fell out of favor in civilized Europe. Surgery in general was considered a desecration to the human body, and it opposed the natural order that God had instilled in our physical forms. In the year 1163 CE, the Catholic Church proclaimed Ecclesia abhorret a sanguin. I apologize for my horrible Latin pronunciation, but the literal translation goes, The Church Detests Blood. Surgery became a crime for much of Middle Ages in Europe, and furthermore, anatomic dissection of the deceased for the purpose of education or learning was also condemned. This was until physicians like Guy de Chauliac and later Andreas Vesalius published extensively on their own anatomic observations of human corpses. These findings progressively grew in importance during the war-stricken Renaissance, when injuries to the human body, and especially the head, became increasingly common. By the 16th century, trepanation made its grand resurgence in European medicine. Worth noting here is that, Although trepanation became more socially acceptable by many European nations, it failed to make gains as a safe and effective surgical procedure anywhere in the world until the mid-19th century, when American physicians Dr. Collins Warren and William Morton began to popularize the concept of general anesthesia using ether vapor in 1848. And while the antiseptic technique was originally described by Joseph Lister in 1867, it would be another several decades before it was universally implemented in Western medical practice. Fast forward to the present day, where trepanation is now referred to as craniotomy. While the procedure carried significant risk 5,000 years ago, now it's so simple that a first-year neurosurgery resident can quickly learn to place an external ventricular drain at the bedside without any supervision. And there are many reasons to perform various kinds of craniotomies, or to place an EVD, often to relieve intracranial pressure, to evacuate blood or purulent material, or even to permit the brain to swell. In the early 20th century, Harvey Cushing, a physician recognized as the father of neurosurgery, and someone worthy of that title, he would also perform craniotomies for intractable headaches. In his words, To relieve the pain of migraine, we must apply remedies which will lower the intracranial pressure proceeding upon the same lines as we should for the relief of the headache in cerebral tumor or acute meningitis. 
The operation of trepanning has, I believe, never been done for the relief of migraine, though I have known it done several times for the cure of neurasthenic headache. I believe the operation will be justified in those severe cases of frequently recurring migraine in which the unfortunate patient is prostrated for one or more days every week or so by the intense headache and sickness. Obviously, the scientific rationale used by Cushing here to treat migraines by removing skulls was not among his best work. And still, craniotomy was performed for the treatment of schizophrenia, for depression, and for other mood disorders throughout the mid-20th century. Americans called it psychosurgery at the time. Craniotomies were also performed to alleviate cluster headache in some settings up until the 1970s, despite the lack of evidence that they even worked for this indication. It's definitely been a bit of a culture shock for me to learn about the historical approaches to neuromedical and neurosurgical care, even throughout more recent times. As we've expanded our scientific knowledge, improved upon the sterile technique, and refined the instruments involved in neurosurgery, surgeons have begun to narrow down the main indications for craniotomy, which may actually benefit patients. We live in an era of evidence-based medicine. Observations are made, and interventions are systematically and scientifically tested to determine safety and efficacy. Sure, these same practices weren't in place hundreds or thousands of years ago, when witches and mystics were drilling holes into people's skulls because of disturbances in consciousness. It's easy to look back and say, that was really, really dumb. What were they thinking? But I know, somewhere deep in my heart, that physicians in the future will be saying the same thing about those of us in practice today. That was really, really dumb. What were they thinking? I can only hope that we're heading in the right direction. That's all we got for you this week on Brainwaves. As always, you can find more information about the podcast at facebook.com slash brainwavesaudio and on Twitter at brainwavesaudio. Every episode also has an associated blog that goes with it for those of you who are more visually oriented. This week we've got some pretty remarkable photos of unearthed skulls with old trepanation holes, so take a look at that when you get a chance. This week's episode was produced by me, Jim Siegler. Music was courtesy of Chris Zabriskie, Kevin McLeod, and Kai Engel. Coming up over the next few weeks, we've got some shows on serotonin syndrome, a few shows on the surgical management of epilepsy, recurrent meningitis, and later, zombies. Stay tuned for that. I'm Jim Siegler. Thanks for listening.